<laughs> That's a hard question. Yeah. Right? But what they usually do to distinguish between power and energy is to talk about uh, an electric heater. So you might have an electric heater at home, which is one kilowatt, and that's a unit of power, so it's uh, energy per time. But if you run this electric heater for one hour, you have one kilowatt hour, and that's the amount of energy that you have used. So that really distinguishes between power and energy. And it's the kilowatt hour that you pay for on your electricity bill. So uh, yeah, that's the most important one in my opinion. And when you have, for instance, a wind turbine, you talk about the kind of installed capacity. But then when it produces, you produce a kilowatt hours or megawatt hours or something like that because you have the installed capacity. But then when you are to talk about the production, you talk about hours. So you have to, to have the time you produce in order to get energy. And also, for instance, a wind, wind turbine will not always produce at the full capacity. So the installed capacity can, can are normally higher than what you produce. So when you talk about wind turbines, we always end up saying that the output capacity is in megawatts or even gigawatts if we have a huge array. But what is like, <clears throat> how would you describe the difference between a kilowatt a megawatt, and then even upgrade into a gigawatt. So a megawatt is a thousand times bigger than a kilowatt, mm-hmm. and a gigawatt is a thousand times bigger than a megawatt, yeah. so a million times bigger than a kilowatt again. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, 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 dif- the difference between the two, yeah. So I'm guessing it's just an easier way to describe the numbers that you get. Like it's pretty bland to say that we have 1,746,000 watts coming out of this <laughs> there's like it's kind of you can put it into monetary values when it comes to kilo for instance you have that's formally kilograms yeah. so, but gram is a two small units so you talk about kilos which is thousand so it's the same with kilowatt that is also thousand watt and uh, megawatt is then thousand times <laughs> kil- uh, kilowatts. So, so it's, it's just, as you say, it's just the kind of units that may not fit and be very... You, you need a larger scale, so to say. My background is in applied mathematics, and I started within the oil and gas industry, which I <laughs> I would not talk very much about now today. But I think my background is an example. I have a, a, a doctorate, similar to a PhD in yeah. applied mathematics, uh, but it was applied on oil and gas reservoirs. Uh, but then I shifted uh, to uh, research at Institute of Marine Research applying my knowledge on counting fish and fish stock assessments in the Barents Sea. Yeah. Uh, and then I continued to work with Ondo, which is, delivers uh, oceanographic equipment, where I worked with kind of marketing towards uh, mostly the scientific market. So, for instance, University of Bergen was a <laughs> targeted customer. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I moved via a company in the oil and gas industry to... Uh, CMR where I worked at uh, with offshore wind. So I think my background is an example uh, of that uh, applied 
Mathematics can can be used for many purposes. It's a more kind of tool. Okay, so uh, my name is Hans Christian Ringsjöb, and I'm a PhD candidate here at the Geophysical Institute. And uh, I'm working on modeling of energy systems. I've been here for two years now, and I still have two years left. Uh, I have a master's degree in uh, renewable energy. Before that, I did a bachelor's degree in energy technology from Bergen University College. And my master's was a two-year um, master's degree, uh, double degree from, uh, from Paris and Lisbon. I spent the first year in Lisbon and the second year in Paris. And um, it was organized by an organization called InnoEnergy, which is part of the European Union, funded by the European Union. And um, yeah, I did a lot of specializations on wind energy, solar energy, tidal energy, wave energy, and hydropower. And I wrote my master thesis about uh, wind energy and um, modeling or forecasting wind energy on a monthly and seasonal scale. So we talked about this earlier, about like leapfrogging technologies. So in the kind of the more developing countries that they've leapfrogged in the phone industry, that they've gone from the landline to the mobile phone. Do you think that with the technology advancements in offshore wind that you are both involved in, would you think that's a better investment compared to onshore wind, or is it still, it could be, is it just selected for those countries? Well, first of all, if you are going to develop offshore uh, wind, you need a grid to yeah. connect uh, to the mainland. Because, uh, yeah, you have to bring the power from the offshore wind turbines to where it's used. And that's not usually in the waters or in the sea. Yeah. So you have to bring it back to the mainland. So you have to develop uh, a grid. So the advantage with offshore wind is that you have uh, usually uh, uh, higher wind speeds and more stable wind speeds. So you can produce more energy from your wind turbines offshore than onshore. And also, there's already built a lot of onshore wind. So uh, the available spots are getting less and less. Um, but we still have a lot of space on the ocean. So we still have room for offshore wind. Yeah, and offshore you can also have much larger uh, units, much larger wind turbines, so you can have fewer, and that will also bring the costs down when you have fewer but very large wind turbines. And also you can place uh, offshore wind close to some of the load centers like Tokyo and uh, New York and other places, because a lot of the cities around the world are located close to sea. So you can have your production rather close to... Uh, um, load centers and also uh, you you have the opportunity to utilize space that is not used for anything or not used for but it is of, but but the space is a scarce resource in many can, countries and you can for instance think of Netherlands where it will not be very popular to put very large wind farms onshore but offshore you can do that and also as you said capacity factor is much better offshore, so it can pay off actually to, to introduce offshore wind without going onshore in some places. In Norway, as people have seen, do people see like wind turbines as like a good thing or a bad thing, or is it too hard to say? There is always uh, people against it, so, and, and I think in Norway many people feel that it is kind of unnecessary to have onshore wind because you have this cheap hydropower and you have the surplus of hydropower and then why should we spoil Norwegian 
nature with uh, wind turbines when we have enough clean power. So I think that is a, really a challenge. So uh, to me, it's much easier to be an advocate for offshore wind, which I feel has a much less uh, impact on the kind of environment, so to say. I find I personally find it harder to be a strong advocate for onshore wind in Norway because we have the hydropower and we have other resources we can utilize as well. But offshore, I'm really <laughs> advocating very strongly for also in Norwegian waters because I think it's an untapped resource. I think also in some ways it's actually important to separate climate concerns from renewables because renewables... It, uh, is a solution of kind of climate concerns, but you can still be very eager to have um, promote uh, renewable energy without being very concerned about climate, because uh, renewable has uh, a lot of other good uh, things. For instance, local pollution. Yeah. So, 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 yes. so there are much, uh, there are many other drivers for for renewable energy. For instance, in Beijing. You need renewable to get rid of the air pollution. Yeah. So people, it, uh, renewable energy is a solution on, on challenges that people feel like everyday challenges and problems, while climate change is a bit more kind of fluffy. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, th- I, I think renewable can, even people that are not so concerned can, can really uh, be very interested in renewables because it solves some problems they feel in their everyday life. So I think that is also important to to get that message out that renewable solves everyday uh, problems for people. Not just the bigger picture of the the climate change. It's much easier to relate to to air pollution or something, um, lack of supply of uh, of, uh, secure energy. Uh, That's much easier to relate to than this kind of climate will change in 15 years and maybe it gets warmer in Norway and people say, well, that's fine, we, <laughs> we like it. Yeah, <laughs> a better summers and so on. So, so I, th- I, I think in some cases it's, it's worth to separate those two issues, even though they are closely yeah. linked. Yeah, it is interesting because it is much easier to relate to a local issue, like mm. you said, in Beijing with air pollution and then say that the solution can be used in renewables, and then you deal with this problem, and then you can go, actually, look, we now can start to deal with the bigger problem of climate change as well. But I also think that the climate change has been kind of kind of an arena where, where a lot of people have very strong feelings, and that may sometimes hamper the kind of in engagement for ordinary people because people feel that it's so strong people are so kind of engaged and in some cases extreme so I think it's it's also important to have some people that talk about and are engaged in the work against climate change that are not so kind of engaged by heart but more by brain so to say because you, you very often get this very kind of clash between people that, are, that feel that you have to do everything right now. And then a lot of people say, I can't relate to it. Uh, so, so you need some people that can, can 
kind of bridge between those extremely concerned people and those that are not concerned at all. And to po- pinpoint some, or point to some things you can do in your everyday life in order to mitigate and, and uh, reduce your CO2 footprint. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And then I think the well, the main one that we are looking into how to communicate climate change more effectively to anyone. And then would you say, like, how would you, or do you have any areas that you think that have not been done well? Because you both went to research more, and then, or in some other ways, but do you feel like it's quite hard to communicate your research over into the general public, like, regarding climate change? Or do you feel like that sometimes when you talk about these big numbers and then the issues of climate change that people just will, just want to disengage at all? Well, so my research is focused on energy modelling. So I do modelling of energy systems and how they can look like in the future. And I think that's easier to communicate than, uh, than climate change. Because yeah. you have... Uh, yeah, you can visualize how the system will look like in the future. So I'm, for example, looking at the European system and how it will evolve until 2050 and how it can be uh, more renewable. So uh, mainly solar and wind into the, uh, into the grid. And I think that's much easier to communicate than, than climate change because it's already there and you can visualize it. And it's, yeah. Mm. So you said you had lunchtime meetings. Like how do they, like how do they go? Is it just like a lot of people are talking about their research or projects or the news or? We usually have one speaker each week for a lunch meeting, mm-hmm. and uh, people bring their own lunches, and then uh, this speaker has a talk, yeah. and then we have a discussion and questions afterwards, and it's a, uh, it's a uh, informal uh, um, situation. Yeah. So um, yeah. People can ask whatever they want, as stupid questions as they want, and uh, yeah, it should be open for, uh, or it is open for everyone, and uh, it's both students and uh, faculty here at uh, the institute, and it's also open for everybody from the outside who's interested in renewable energy. Do you think this kind of style of lunchtime meeting, like very informal and just very passively educating, is like? Should that be brought into nearly every institute of like education or even into companies itself? Do you think that would like do you personally gain from going to these yes i i I've learned a lot and i I think I've got a much broader perspective of uh, renewable energy and how you can really get things true uh, so to me it has been very interesting, and also we have tried to m- Make uh, to ask the presenters to to talk in a way that gives information to kind of general public. So it should be not be very detailed. It's not a kind of academic. It's to give an introduction, and one of the main targets has been to get a kind of informed discussion and inform people so they can really make the decisions and do this, uh, discuss a topic based on kind of facts and science and not just feelings and uh, private opinions. So it has been very important, I think, to, to have kind of speakers that are able to do a kind of 
introduction and overview and not go into very details of the topics. Um, and I think that I think we have been successful with that. We have not been so successful in getting people from outside academia to attend the meetings. So I think that is a challenge. We have done that. We have had some half-day seminars as well. Uh, there we have had uh, a more mixed audience uh, with people also from outside academia. Uh, and I think that has also been important to us. And in my new position as energy director, it's very important to showcase uh, the knowledge at university and help bring that knowledge to the public, but not least decision makers. Because I think when the decisions maker, when the decision makers are well informed, I think it's easier for them to do good, uh, make good choices. So I think politicians and the governmental bodies are very important for us to get true to with information and facts and science. Yeah, so it'd be quite an interest in if you could bring in, like, as someone who's doing research uh, into an aspect of technology, and then you brought in, like, the politicians who would be trying to implement that, and then the people who work in the companies that also are the ones that put that into place. And then these people can start to kind of communicate and then understand which needs are needed from this type of aspect of, like, what do the politicians need to see? Like, do they need to have... Uh, one like certain efficiency number that it's really easy for them to bring in investors or the people who are implementing it do they need to have something like that they feel like the politicians don't need because if you had them like a very informal way then people can just be like oh I have the knowledge about this this could completely change how fast technology gets put into place Is it, I think kind of Informal meetings and uh, workshops are very good ways of kind of conveying information and, and make people talk together. And then you understand what are the key questions for politicians, for instance, for governmental bodies. What, what, what questions do they need help to answer from university? And as you said, the question raised by politicians might be completely different from a business guy. So, But you need to answer the questions uh, each group are posing uh, and not tell them that you should ask about something else. You, you really need to meet people and, and answer their questions and help them to, to go further and make their choices based on all information available. So I think that is a very important task for universities and I think that is something universities in general should put more focus on.